0: Have you ever had to stand out before, maybe because of something you did or something that happened to you, maybe because you wanted to stand out or maybe because you really didn't want to stand out? I can remember uh, as a rookie on a junior hockey team being subjected to rookie initiation, which is also known as hazing. Uh, Now, there are some terrible, horrific stories of hazing in junior hockey uh, across Canada. Thankfully, my team was pretty tame in comparison to some of those stories, but I was subject to the rookie haircut. And so the veterans on the team got uh, uh, some clippers and they went to town on the rookies' heads doing whatever kind of patterns they felt like they wanted. So on my head, they just did three lines, one here, one here, and one down the middle. But the thing was, you had to keep this haircut for an entire day until from the practice the one day till the game the next night. And so I showed up at high school at MEI the next day with a toque over my head, really praying that nobody would take it off or ask why I was wearing it. And I made it through most of the day uh, unscathed. One teacher asked me about it, but when I kind of told him what happened, he was gracious about it. But the real standing out moment happened the next night at the game. Of course, the national anthems are sung, or the national anthem is sung before the game. And there's five players that stand on the blue line in the middle of the ice with their helmets off. And so who did they put out on the blue line but the rookies with their heads shaved in all kinds of creative kind of ways. I remember the bright lights shining down on my head with me and my teammates as the crowd saw us and kind of laughed. You could hear the giggles from our bench uh, as they laughed at us standing out for everyone to see. Under the light. So wish that there was a hole we could have crawled into, um, but alas, we just endured the experience and put our helmets on. Perhaps you've had to stand out for something in your life and in the world we live in, and with the faith that we hold to, there are times when God calls us to stand out because of what it is that we believe. Sometimes the the things that we hold to put us at odds with our culture. And so we take a stand. And we have to stand out, and sometimes that's very uncomfortable. But yet, sometimes it's what God calls us to. So, enter in the biblical character of Daniel. Daniel was in this kind of a situation where he was called to stand out in various ways. We're going to study this book over the next 10 weeks and see various ways in which Daniel was called. To stand out, The main idea of the book of Daniel, if we were to summarize it into one sentence, could be, could be said like this, God is in control even when the world seems like it's out of control. God is in control even when the world seems like it's out of control. And we're going to see that many times as we study through this book. Today we'll study uh, Daniel chapter 1, but before we get there, just a few notes of introduction to the book to help us to understand what's going on. When we think about Old Testament history, we think about the nation of Israel called by God in order to be a blessing to the world. They reached the height of their influence under the reign of King David, who was a great king, after the, one after the Lord's own heart. But his son Solomon, uh, though he extended Israel's wealth, started them into a moral tailspin. And it wasn't long into the the reign of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, that the nation had split into two the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. This was, as the scriptures clearly tell us, a result of God's judgment because of their unfaithfulness. They hadn't carried out the mission that God had given to them. And so the superpower of Assyria in that day, the 8th century BC, came and took the northern kingdom of Israel into exile. They were gone, they never returned. The southern kingdom of Judah held on for a little bit longer, but eventually the nation of Babylon came to to prominence uh, on the world stage. And came in from the north and laid siege to Jerusalem. In fact, they laid siege to Jerusalem three times. The first one was in 605 BC. And this is where the story of Daniel picks up. King Nebuchadnezzar, actually Nebuchadnezzar wasn't quite the king yet, came and laid siege on the city. He was leading their army. And he heard that his father had passed away. And so he quickly left to go back to Babylon to assert his role as the new king. When he left to go back, he said, let's take some of the finest people we can find from Judah and let's take some of the the most precious things from their temple and bring them back with us. And then we'll come back and finish the job. And they came back twice more in the next 20 years, ultimately taking this southern kingdom of Judah into exile into 586, in 586 B.C., These historical events are, are accounted for in the Bible, but also in some tablets that have been found called the Babylonian Chronicles. They were found in 1887, and they describe these same events. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was the king, became the king, and we know that he was a ruthless egomaniac. We, we know this through several of the stories that we'll study in the next few weeks. In chapter 3, we read that he built a 90-foot-tall golden statue, presumably of himself, and demanded that people bow down to it and worship it. In chapter 2, he had a dream that troubled him, and so he called upon the people of the country, his, his magicians and his astrologers and his dream interpreters, to interpret this dream, and when they couldn't do it, he threatened to kill them all unless somebody could come up with an answer to this dream that had troubled him so much. We know that he was ruthless. We know that he was not the most uh, humble or nice king to serve underneath, and yet this is the one who's in charge when the story of Daniel begins. The author of this book is almost certainly Daniel. There's not really much question about that, although some people would say that this book was written later on than when Daniel's life was, was complete. So Daniel probably wrote this in 530, 535 B.C., and um, the second half of the book is full of prophecy and apocalyptic vision. Some people think that this book was written in the second century BC because the things that Daniel prophesied at the end of the book came, to, came true in the second century BC. And in fact, Daniel writes about those events with such precision and detail that some people argue he must have written or somebody must have written it after the events rather than before because they're so accurate in the prediction. If you remove the fact that God could have spoken to Daniel ahead of time and told him these things, then you have to make that kind of an argument. But if we're comfortable with the idea that God, by his spirit, could have given Daniel insight into these things, that would happen 300 years later. We don't have a problem with Daniel being written in the 6th century BC. And there are other linguistic clues that help us to understand that that's probably when it was written and written by Daniel. Uh, The composition of the book goes like this. There's 12 chapters. The first chapter is written in Hebrew, which is what the majority of the Old Testament is written in. And it's a prologue, an introduction to the book. Chapters one to seven are largely stories. Chapters two to seven are written in the Aramaic language. There's not much in the Old Testament written in Aramaic. There's a little bit in Ezra and then two other verses in the Old Testament, one in Genesis, one in Jeremiah, that were written in Aramaic. So there's not a whole lot of precedent for Aramaic. In the Old Testament, and then chapters 8 to 12 are written again in Hebrew, and those last chapters have to do with this prophetic vision and this apocalyptic kind of imagery that we see there. In fact, some of the visions that Daniel sees are so intense that even Daniel himself struggled to know what it is that they meant. We'll look at that as we get towards the end of this series. Now, this switch in languages, some people think this is a a structural thing where Daniel's making a point by shifting languages back and forth. And we'll get into some of those structural details, particularly around chapter 4, which may well serve as the climax of the book, chapters 4 and chapter 5. So we'll study some of those elements as we carry on through, but let's turn our attention now to chapter 1, Daniel chapter 1. And we've said that the main idea of Daniel could be summarized by the idea that God is in control even when the world seems like it's out of control. The main message we could see in Daniel chapter 1 is this, God sovereignly gives exactly what is needed when it is needed. God gives exactly what is needed when it is needed. We're going to study Daniel 1 in three sections, and each of these three sections includes a common verb. Whenever you see a verb that's repeated, there's a chance, a good chance, that the author is trying to communicate something with this, and we actually uh, have to see it in the Hebrew. The the English translations actually translate this verb three different ways, and so, but the verb is give, God gives, God gave, and we're going to see this three different times throughout this chapter, and it gives us a clue as to what it is that Daniel's wanting us to see here. So first, chapter 1, verses 1 to 7, we could summarize uh, these verses by saying this, the world is a mess, and yet we can still have hope. So let's see that in Daniel chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered, the Lord gave, there's the first gave verb, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles of the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Doing so was an an ancient way of saying, my God has, has achieved victory over your God when I take things out of your temple and bring them into mine. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, "...to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service." Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So let's stop there. The world is a mess, and yet still we can have hope. Think about poor Daniel. Daniel's just living his life in Judah. There's nothing said about his life in Judah, but it was familiar. It was home. It was where he had been raised. He's probably a teenager at this point when Babylon comes swooping in and takes him away and puts him into a foreign land. He knows nobody except the people that have come with him. He doesn't know the language. He doesn't know the customs. He doesn't know the religion. And yet he's not only put there, but he's put there with the intent that he is going to assimilate completely into this culture. He is supposed to leave behind everything that he knew and join forces with what was going on in Babylon. His world was turned completely upside down. It must have seemed like a mess. He must have seemed, he must have been confused. Perhaps he was angry. Certainly he would have grieved this change. Now, this is not the same as being taken from Abbotsford and like put in the south of France or something like that. Babylon was not a pleasant place. In fact, throughout the scriptures, Babylon is the personification of evil throughout the scriptures. Uh, Larry Osborne, who writes a book about um, the book of Daniel called Thriving in Babylon, says this, Nothing will ever reach the depths of Babylon's depravity. Not Al-Qaeda, not Mexican drug lords, not the Tower of Babel, not Sodom, not Gomorrah, not even Nazi Germany will reach the depths of the evil of the kingdom of Babylon. And yet, this is where Daniel is living. Babylon is so evil, in fact, that in Revelation, in this vision that John has of of the end of days, the, the proclamation of God upon evil is being made. And in Revelation 18, this is how evil is described. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, "'Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the great!' She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal, for all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth have committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries." See, see what the, the uh, angel is doing there? He's saying evil in our world is personified in this nation of Babylon. And this is where Daniel is taken. And friends, in some ways, we live in a sort of Babylon, don't we? We can look around at the structures of our world and see that they are based on power and greed and money. We can see that people are oppressed. We can see that there's racial inequality. We can see that there is uh, greed that goes uh, unchecked in our world. We can see a world of sexual perversion and confusion. We can see that the ethics of our world are different than the ethics of the kingdom of God. We live in a sort of Babylon. And so looking at Daniel is going to give us great clues as to how we ought to operate in the world that we live. Because he operated with great wisdom. But Daniel's situation goes even beyond us, I think, because sure, we can feel the pressures of of some of these forces and influences in our world. Daniel felt more than the pressure, he was thrown into the midst of it and expected to assimilate to this culture. They, They did this partially by education, they did it also by giving new names. The name Daniel means God is my judge. His new name, Belshazzar, means Bel's prince. Bel is one of their gods. The name Hananiah means beloved by the Lord. His new name, Shadrach, means illumined by the sun god. The name Mishael means who is as God. His new name, Meshach, means who is like Aku, one of their gods. The name Azariah means the Lord is my help. His new name, Abednego, means servant of Nego. One of their gods. Even in their names, they're saying, you will be like the Babylonians. You will be one of us. You will serve Nebuchadnezzar with your whole life. Your whole identity has been changed. You are now like the Babylonians. And they were made to study. They studied things like language and history and astronomy and math and medicine and religious omens and dream interpretation. There are tablets that have been found that describe this Babylonian system of of occultish like practices, the right kind of chance to stay in certain situations, the right way to interpret dreams and symbols. All of this was spelled out for them. They were expected to learn it. They went to classes that you and I would never take in university. They were forced to go there. David Guzik says, this was an attempt at total indoctrination. You will become like us. It's hard to live in Babylon. So the world is a mess and yet we have hope. How do we have hope? Well, we have at least two reasons to have hope that we see in these verses. Number one, when we look at the book of Daniel, we see that he lived for 80, 85, maybe 90 years. Babylon would have seemed like the superpower that was completely um, uh, overwhelming. Like you couldn't beat the, the, the Babylonians. And yet before Daniel's life ended, they were defeated. The Medes and then the Persians came to power. In other words, this too will pass. This this indoctrination, this kind of pressure, uh, this too will pass. And when Daniel has visions of of centuries later, he sees how nations rise and nations fall and kingdoms come and kingdoms go. And yet over all of it, God is sovereign. We see this clearly in Daniel 1. There's the the first verb, give, there. God gave the, the Israelites into the hands of the Babylonians. God gave them over. It was a part of his plan. It might have seemed like evil was winning, but God was behind the whole thing. God was sovereign over all of it. It was confusing, I'm sure. It was perplexing. I don't know if Daniel, when he was a teenager getting taken away, would have seen God's hand in it, but at the end of his life, he reflects back and says, No, God gave us into the hands of the Babylonians. He was at work, he wasn't asleep, he wasn't off on vacation somewhere. God was in control. This too will pass. God will bring this to the place where he wants to bring it. So I think there's something to be said here that that we as Christians sometimes are tempted to think this is as bad as it's ever been. And this is as bad as it's ever going to get. Have you seen the world that we live in today? Have you seen what so-and-so is doing? Have you seen about this trend? Have you... We need to avoid thinking that this is the worst that it's ever been and the worst it's ever going to get. It's been bad before and it will be bad again. But yet still God is sovereign over it all. God is in control. And there's this interesting pattern in scripture and we see it in Daniel where judgment begins with God's people. (laughs) We would like to think that judgment will begin with all the wicked people out there. But instead often God brings judgment on his own people to purify them, to strengthen them. To, to to promote greater obedience in them, so that they can thrive in Babylon. This is where God begins. So God's sovereign over it all. We can have hope because of that. Secondly, we can have hope because God will judge the wicked eventually, and the righteous will be rewarded. This is clear through scripture. We read it in Revelation 18, right? Judgment is upon Babylon and all that it stands for. Uh, David understood this. When he wrote Psalm 37, he wrote this, Don't fret because of those who are evil or be envious because of those who do wrong. For like grass they will soon wither, like green plants they will die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn. Your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways. When they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed. But those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. This was David's perspective. It's Daniel's perspective too. The wicked will be judged eventually and we can have hope that our righteous living in the midst of Babylon will be rewarded one day, even though it's hard. Let's carry on in verse 8 to 16. We could summarize these these verses by saying this. Pick your battles. So verse 8, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. Here's the second time this verb give is used. Now, God caused the official to give favor and compassion to Daniel and his friends. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see." So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. Pick your battles. You know, Daniel gets a lot of credit and his friends, as they should, for standing out and standing up at this one point and saying, this food thing is a line we're not willing to cross. My question, though, is why was that the line? I mean, they had lost in so many other ways, right? Just think about the the getting picked up and moved into exile, being renamed, being forced to learn all of these things that were completely opposed to what the God of Israel was teaching them. And yet somehow it was at this one point that they said, no, this is where we won't go. This is the line we won't cross. Why there and not somewhere else? Well, there's at least three reasons that have been suggested why this was the thing. The first is that perhaps it was because of Mosaic food laws, that they knew that Old Testament law in terms of what you could eat and what you shouldn't eat, according to God's law, there are some things that the king wanted them to eat that they knew that they shouldn't. It's possible that could be it, though we do have to ask ourselves two questions. One is, how much of this were they actually following before? Judah was being unfaithful to God. Were they actually following these laws and did Daniel actually know them? Maybe the answer is yes, maybe the answer is no. And secondly, why refuse wine, which was not one of the prohibited foods in the Old Testament law? So perhaps it was a Mosaic food law thing, perhaps not. Uh, the second thing it could be is maybe this food had been offered to idols. And so in some sort of ceremony, some sort of ritual, or an animal was sacrificed to an idol and then they were, they were supposed to eat this meat, maybe that was it. Maybe there was this idolatry implied that they didn't want to cross that line. Thirdly, and I think this probably is the most likely, this was a leverage point they had some control over. This was a way that they could stand up for what they believed in a way that actually had some chance of success. That there was some way that they could have favor in this way. You know, it seems like probably if they had stood up on some of these other things, they would have just been killed and that would have been the end of the story. So there was some sort of moral calculation going on in Daniel's mind and in the minds of his friends to say, this here is where we need to draw the line. We do this same kind of moral reasoning all the time, don't we? I mean, one example would be, hopefully, that when you sit down to watch any kind of movie, you've done some investigating as to what kind of content this movie uh, contains right when i sit down to watch a movie i'm i look it up online and see well this this is what's in the movie and then there's some sort of moral determination to say is this something that i want to participate in is this something i want to let into my mind or not when we i do the same thing when we're watching something with our kids what is this what does this contain is this something that i want our kids to see or is this something that i don't want them to see we do this kind of moral reasoning all the time and for daniel here is the spot we need to draw the line here. I wonder if part of his reasoning was some things are out of our control but this thing here is within my control, right? When we think of laws that are made in our land or, or things that are taught in our schools, sure we can stand up and have a voice and we ought to in, in many ways in the right kind of way as we'll see but some things are outside of our control, And that doesn't mean we just throw up our hands and go along with whatever comes our way. But it does mean we're wise in how we pick our battles. The thing that Daniel does here is so brilliant. He approaches it with wisdom. He approaches it with humility. He approaches it with tact. And he comes up with creative solutions. Right? I think a lot of uh, uh, Christians these days might just throw a fit at this point. (laughs) right? And say, we're not going along with this and we're going to become loud and obnoxious and arrogant about it. And and we're going to, you know, cast uh, aspersions on other people who don't follow our morality. We're going to assume that our our secular world ought to assume a biblical morality. We're going to try and impose that on culture. But when Daniel gets to this spot, he doesn't do that. He's not defiant. He's not humble or he is humble rather, not defiant. As Dale Davis says, Daniel didn't throw a religious hissy fit. He didn't go off about Babylon's heavy-handedness and insensitivity. He simply looked around for the next possible step to see where that might land him. Daniel was not one of those people who believed that firmness of principle always involves acting stubborn and pig-headed. It's as if Daniel is fully aware that he is under the Lord's grace. And he is. We see it happen when the Lord causes this official to give them compassion. He looked around for his next possible step. He came up with a creative way to accomplish that. And he trusted that the Lord would provide. Uh, Richard Niebuhr has done some really interesting thinking about the relationship between Christ and culture. And he proposes a a variety of approaches to how, how we as Christians can approach the culture in which we live. On extremes, you have on one side that Christ is totally opposed to culture and that Christians ought to isolate themselves from any kind of cultural influence and reject it as unclean, immoral. We're not going to get involved. On the other hand, you could say Christ is totally within and for culture. And there's no need for us to separate from anything. We can accept anything and everything that culture throws at us. And Christ is pleased with that. I think you can see that those are extremes that ought to be rejected. But the truth is somewhere in the middle. That if we're going to live in Babylon, that we need to navigate culture in a humble kind of way. Rather than being defiant and arrogant and expecting non-Christian people to live in Christian ways... Which doesn't really make sense to me. Why would they hold to the same standard of morality and ethics as we do when they don't believe the same thing that we do? We ought to engage with wisdom and with humility. And when we find the place where we need to stand out, we do so with courage and we do so with conviction, but we also do so with the willingness to accept the consequences of that as Daniel and his friends are multiple times throughout the book. I think Christian's ought to stop isolating from culture and instead engage it. To interact with it, to seek to influence it. To to stop throwing grenades from the sidelines or stop getting angry on Twitter. To pray for those who believe differently than you do. Pray for their good. Interesting in Daniel that when Daniel succeeds, he actually helps Babylon to thrive. He doesn't take them down from the inside. You know, Daniel may well be criticized if he was alive today for fraternizing with the enemy or being too close to culture. I mean, think about the kinds of things that he had to study, the kinds of things he had to know, the kinds of things he had to do. And yet, God allowed him to thrive so that when culture failed, he was able to provide a better alternative. We'll see that in chapter two. None of the dream interpreters or or the astrologers could figure out this dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had. So Daniel comes in with all the same training and all the same credentials and says, hey, your system here is, is limited. It can only go so far, but God can go further. And let me show you how. Daniel earned that opportunity. So let's finish off then looking at verses 17 to 21. And what we can learn from these verses is that victory comes after obedience. Victory comes after obedience. So to these four young men, God gave, there's the third gave. God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Victory comes after obedience. Their their obedience was to be faithful in this matter of food. And the victory came that God gave them all kinds of knowledge and understanding and wisdom. They became the best in the Babylonian school, right? All of these things about the Babylonian culture and language and and all of these things that they were supposed to study, they, they excelled, they were top of the class. God gave them all kinds of wisdom and understanding, but he gave them more than this secular kind of understanding, though they, as we said, understood the culture better than anybody else. He gave them a spiritual wisdom, spiritual understanding that would come in handy many times. God made them excel in Babylon. See, faithfulness in small things leads to reward in big things. Dale Davis says, In Daniel 1, the losers, by the twists of God's providence, have become the winners. The exiles become the most prominent servants in the king's uh, command. It's God's subversive work to do it this way. And so we wait for the next thing. That's the command for us. We walk with the light that God has given us and we take the next step of obedience. And God will then provide the next step. When we walk in the light God has given us, he gives us more. When we don't walk in the light that God has given us, he gives us less. This has actually been one of the ways in which I felt God has spoken to me in the last year. I've had lots of questions for God about the state of our world and the state of the church and how is the church going to be different after the pandemic and what kinds of shifts do we need to make and what do we need to do next and what's the big picture, God? And God has consistently over and over again said to me, I'm not giving you the big picture, I'm giving you the next step. So be obedient in the next thing. Be obedient in the next step. And then I will give you the next one. And then I will give you the next one. And there's a certain kind of contentedness that comes with that. We have hope that God knows the bigger picture, that he's sovereign. Even when the world seems like it's out of control, God is still in control. And God gives to us exactly what we need at the time that we need it. And so we can have faith and hope and trust that God will provide for us when we need the next step. So two questions as we end. How has God provided for you when you needed it the most? And then secondly, in what area of your life do you need God's direction for your next step? We invite your feedback to those questions in the chat if you're watching on our online platform. But if not, think about it today. Talk about it with a friend or a family member. How has God provided for you exactly when you needed it? And in what area of your life are you praying for God to reveal the next step? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this story of Daniel, which teaches us so much, teaches us about what it means to be faithful, and ultimately, it teaches that you are faithful. No matter how chaotic things seem, no matter hopeless the situation might be, no matter how dark the world seems, you are still in control. You are still sovereign. And you will bring this world to the place where you want it to be and to the place where you return and set all things right. So we take hope in that. And we ask that you would continue to reveal to us what is next. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.